Hello everybody and welcome back to our reading and evaluating the Dead Sea Scrolls series. Last week we started covering how they loved them, some allegorical method, so they could claim that the real meaning behind the prophets was, well, whatever they wanted the prophets to say. Whatever they wanted Moses to say. They read everything into the Bible according to their little pet causes. And this is obviously an age-old trick that false teachers will use in order to have one religion, but make it look like a different religion. Then the Dead Sea Scrolls, these guys are the absolute kings of this abominable practice. They are the best at it. We are going to try to finish up their commentaries on the minor prophets and start getting into some of the other stuff they did, but we gotta start with a nice long fragment on their commentary for Habakkuk. Like last time, I want you to just go ahead and assume that whatever Bible verse is being cited is probably mistranslated in one way, shape, or form. You know, they're going to do this. They're going to mistranslate it. But we're going to be paying special attention on their interpretations, what they are saying each verse means. So we go in here, they are commenting on chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 of Habakkuk, Oracle of Habakkuk the prophet, How long, O Lord, shall I cry for help, and thou wilt not hear? Interpreted, this concerns the beginning of the final generation. Now, we understand that interpretation is garbage because the book of Habakkuk includes Habakkuk saying, Everybody around me is wicked. Everything sucks here in Judah. And God says, you're right, so I'm going to send the Babylonians. And then Habakkuk says, oh my goodness, that's terrifying. They're worse than we are. And God says, trust me in this. The righteous shall live by faith. That's it. That's the big message of Habakkuk. But here they want to say it's about the final generation. Let's see if they have some interesting commentary on what that means for the quote-unquote final generation. Or shout to thee violence, and thou wilt not deliver, chapter 1, verse 2b. Why dost thou cause me to see iniquity and to look upon trouble? Desolation and violence are before me, chapter 1, verse 3. And their commentary reads, dot, dot, dot. God with oppression and unfaithfulness, dot, 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 they rob riches. Doesn't tell us much, except that maybe in this final generation here, they are uh, evil. Everybody's evil-er than they already are. There is quarreling and contention, chapter 1, verse 3b. So the law is weak and justice never goes forth, chapter 1, verses 4a and b. Interpreted, this concerns those who have despised the law of God, dot 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 well okay that's actually true except we don't see what they mean by that and we understand they're talking about a final generation not Habakkuk's generation where there was a vast majority of people in Judah despising God's law for the wicked encompass the righteous chapter 1 verse 4c the wicked is the wicked priest and the righteous is the teacher of righteousness <laughs> Yep, we knew this moment was coming when they said, bad guys in the prophets are led by the teacher of wickedness, but good guys are the teacher of righteousness who's leading Qumran. As for the mysterious figure of the teacher of righteousness that shows up in the Dead Sea Scrolls, it's best to just assume that the teacher of righteousness is the leader of the Qumran cult. 
And so, of course, he's making everything about him, if indeed he is the one writing this commentary. So justice goes forth perverted. Chapter 1, verse 4. Behold the nations and see, marvel and be astonished, for I accomplish a deed in your days, but you will not believe it when told. Chapter 1, verse 5. Interpreted, this concerns those who were unfaithful together with the liar, capital L, liar, in that they did not listen to the word received by the teacher of righteousness from the mouth of God. And it concerns the unfaithful of the new covenant, in that they have not believed in the covenant of God and have profaned his holy name. And likewise, this saying is to be interpreted as concerning those who will be unfaithful at the end of days. They, the men of violence and the breakers of the covenant, will not believe when they hear all that is to happen to the final generation from the priest, in whose heart God set understanding that he might interpret all the words of his servants, the prophets, through whom he foretold all that would happen to his people and his land. I just love the cope here. I love the mental gymnastics of, yeah, well, somebody might say that this isn't what the scroll of Habakkuk is actually about, but you know what? That's just because you're a rebel that doesn't like the new covenant out here at Qumran. And you know what? You're going to see stuff that's going to blow your mind, dude. Because you haven't believed in the super awesome teacher of righteousness who, like, understands all these prophecies that are, like, secretly about him. <laughs> They're in foring. They are trying to say that if you disagree with us, it's because you don't have gnosis, you see. Typical cult behavior. Again, this is what you do when you want to make one religion look like a different religion. Now, for those who aren't as familiar with the Dead Sea Scrolls, or maybe this is your first time listening, by New Covenant, what they mean is like the community rule and the entrance covenant into the Qumran community. They do not mean New Covenant as in the New Covenant that Christ ushered in with his blood on the cross. That's furthest from the mind of the Qumran community. In fact, some scholars have believed that the so-called teacher of lies may have been some Christian disciple, witness, evangelist, or even Christ himself, given that Jesus Christ gave us freedom from the law, and Qumran made an idol out of it. But we continue on. For behold, I rouse the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, chapter 1, verse 6, Interpreted, this concerns the Kittim, who are quick and valiant in war, causing many to perish. All the world shall fall under the dominion of the Kittim, and the wicked, dot, 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 they shall not believe in the laws of God. Now, we understand that's not the case, according to the plain meaning of Scripture. The Chaldeans are the Babylonians. They are to the east of Israel. The Kittim here which is the, the Greeks, the Gentiles, the Romans, are to the west. There's like a thousand miles between these two groups. But every time the bad guy shows up, or a bad group, a pagan group, shows up in the prophets or in the scripture, uh, Qumran is quick to say, uh, that's the Kittim, that's actually them, because the, the bad guys equal people we want dead. Every single time. We have not failed to see them put the Kittim behind every single ancient Near Eastern face that wasn't Israelite or from Judah. Who marched through the breadth of the earth to take possession of dwellings which are not their own. Chapter 1 verse 6b. 
dot 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 they shall march across the plain smiting and plundering the cities of the earth for it is as he said to take possession of dwellings which are not their own now funny babylon did that too but oh well they are fearsome and terrible their justice and grandeur proceed from themselves chapter 1 verse 7 interpreted this concerns the Katim who inspire all the nations with fear and dread all their evil plotting is done with intention and they deal with all the nations in cunning and guile god has already said this is about the chaldeans the babylonians ur of the chaldees you know abraham's home neo babylon nebuchadnezzar that ring a bell no 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 it's got to be those stinking romans man those darn gentiles their horses are swifter than leopards and fleeter than evening wolves. Their horses step forward proudly and spread their wings. They fly from afar like an eagle avid to devour. All of them come for violence. The look on their faces is like the east wind. Chapter 1 verses 8 and 9a. Interpreted, this concerns the Kittim, who trample the earth with their horses and beasts. They come from afar, from the islands of the sea, to devour all the peoples like an eagle which cannot be satisfied. And they address all the peoples with anger and wrath and fury and indignation. For it is as he said, the look on their faces is like the east wind. Now you might hear east wind and think this means they're coming from the east, like the Babylonians. And maybe you would think an eagle doesn't actually just keep devouring because it can't be satisfied. An eagle that did that would be too fat to fly. But it, it has to be what they're talking about. It just has to be because those guys, they, we want them dead. We hate these people so much. Keep in mind, guys, we do not ever, 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 ever want our theology or our doctrine, our dogma, what we believe to come out of a place of hatred and animosity for something else. It really should be for love of God. It really should be for the love of his word and what his word teaches us. If you define yourself by what you are against then you're going to find yourself acting a lot like Qumran, having murder fantasies and painting a picture of your enemy on every single thing in the Bible and predicting their eventual downfall and slaughter over verses and chapters of the Bible that have nothing to do with that. I'm looking at this like a salutary warning for every Christian to not be like the Qumran community. But we continue on. They heap up captives like sand, chapter 1, verse 9. They scoff at kings, and princes are their laughing stock, chapter 1, verse 10a. Interpreted, this means that they mock the great and despise the venerable. They ridicule kings and princes and scoff at the mighty host. They laugh at every fortress. They pile up earth and take it, chapter 1, verse 10b. Interpreted, this concerns the commanders of the Kittim, who despise the fortresses of the people and laugh at them in derision. To capture them, they encircle them with a mighty host, and out of fear and terror, they deliver themselves into their hands. They destroy them because of the sins of their inhabitants. Hmm. Okay, well, something interesting here, besides more of the same, is that they believed that the Kittim would be used as a punishment vehicle some sort of way to punish the captives and other Gentiles due to their sins. Now, after all, the king of Babylon and the king of Assyria were both used to punish Israel and Judah. However, this is saying that the Kittim are going to do that worldwide. 
But continuing on, the wind then sweeps on and passes, and they make of their strength their God. Chapter 1, verse 11. Interpreted this concerns the commanders of the Kittim, who on the council of the house of guilt pass one in front of the other. One after another, their commanders come to lay waste the earth. And they make of their strength their God, interpreted this concerns dot 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 all the peoples dot dot dot. Now by house of guilt, they're probably referring to one of two things. There is the children of Belial, all the people who had an evil spirit put inside of them by God at their conception in order to ensure their damnation because the Qumran community were big believers in double predestination. Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. Thou hast ordained them, O Lord, for judgment. Thou hast established them, O Rock, for chastisement. Their eyes are too pure to behold evil, and thou canst not look on distress. Chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Interpreted, this saying means that God will not destroy his people by the hand of the nations. God will execute the judgment of the nations by the hand of his elect. And through their chastisement, all the wicked of his people shall expiate their guilt, who keep his commandments in their distress. For it is, as he said, too pure of eyes to behold evil. Interpreted, this means that they have not lusted after their eyes during the age of wickedness. Two things to notice about this, though. Um, first off, they did mistranslate chapter 1, verse 13, because Habakkuk actually writes, your eyes are too pure to behold evil, not their eyes are too pure to behold evil. So they're saying, oh, well, this, this cannot be Habakkuk just protesting against what God is saying. Remember, Habakkuk raises his hand and says, God, wait a second, they're worse than we are. Aren't they supposed to be judged, not us? And uh, Qumran says, you know what? Let's make this verse say their eyes are too pure to behold evil. We're going to turn this into a prophecy about God's people executing judgment of the nations by the hand of his elect. Yes, that's what we're going to do here. It can't be that we're wrong. It just can't be. No way, no chance. So in addition to the allegorical method, they're doing something that... Uh, a lot of Protestant denominations will do without saying they're doing, which is rationalistic interpretation of Scripture. If you have a prior premise, according to your theology, that the Bible seems to disagree with, according to its plain meaning, well, then you just you reason it out that it can't honestly be about this thing that I thought up, you see. They're using their reason to interpret the text in order to guard their allegorical interpretation. When really Habakkuk is giving a complaint regarding the Babylonians here and how much worse they were than the Judeans. It's that simple, but they don't want that to be the case. They don't want God to judge God's people. Heaven forbid. But we continue on here. <laughs> oh, traitors, why do you stare and stay silent when the wicked swallows up one more righteous than he? Chapter 1, verse 13. Interpreted, this concerns the house of Absalom and the members of its council who were silent at the time of the chastisement of the teacher of righteousness and gave him no help against the liar who flouted the law in the midst of their whole congregation. Uh, okay, let's, let's look at that. What is the house of Absalom? Well, Absalom was an attempted usurper in the house of David. He was David's son who tried to take over. 
So using coded language, the interpreter here for Qumran is saying that this group, the house of Absalom, they're calling that probably because he is a usurper, and the members of its council who were silent at the time of the chastisement of the teacher of righteousness and gave him no help against the liar who flouted the law in the midst of their whole congregation. This sounds like internecine squabbling, that there's some competing sect of Essenes here, or perhaps even Christians, who aren't really backing up this teacher of righteousness that runs Qumran, that they really, really, really want to be their big super-duper messiah-type figure here. But even if I'm wrong on the specific application of their coded language, just step back for a second and imagine what this interpretation really says. It's akin to someone saying, you know, Bakeu was talking mad smack about me behind my back and spreading rumors about me in the school. And Jennifer didn't help. So this prophecy is about how God is totally going to judge Jennifer. And then I'm going to get my revenge on Bakke because I hate Bakke. It's teenage girl, gossip girl type squabbling here. And he's saying that the Bible is about that, prophesying him. Oh, goodness. Thou dealest with men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things, to rule over them. They draw them up all with a fish hook, and drag them out with their net, and gather them in their same. Therefore they sacrifice to their net. Therefore they rejoice and exult and burn incense to their same. For by them their portion is fat and their sustenance rich. Chapter 1, verses 14 through 16 of Habakkuk. Dot, 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 the Kittim. And they shall gather in their riches, together with all their booty, like the fish of the sea. And as for that which he said, therefore they sacrifice to their net, and burn incense to their sane. Interpreted, this means that they sacrifice to their standards, and worship their weapons of war. For by them their portion is fat, and their sustenance rich. Interpreted, this means that they divide their yoke, and their tribute, their sustenance, over all the peoples, year by year, ravaging many lands." Wow, it's almost like they're talking about the Babylonians. They almost got this interpretation correct, but they just can't help themselves. Therefore, their sword is ever drawn to massacre nations mercilessly. Chapter 1, verse 17. Interpreted, this concerns the Kittim, who cause many to perish by the sword, youths, grown men, the aged, women, and children, and who even take no pity on the fruit of the womb. I will take my stand to watch and will station myself upon my fortress. I will watch to see what he will say to me and how he will answer my complaint. And the Lord answered and said to me, Write down the vision and make it plain upon the tablets, that he who reads it may read it speedily. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Dot, dot, dot. And God told Habakkuk to write down that which would happen to the final generation. But he did not make known to him when time would come to an end. And as for that which he said, that he who reads it may read it speedily, interpreted this concerns the teacher of righteousness, to whom God made known all the mysteries of the words of his servants, the prophets. Okay, so he who reads it may read it speedily. Not that Habakkuk only wrote two chapters to get this done and distributed to people before the Babylonians invaded. No, 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 this is about the teacher of righteousness probably writing this interpretation down, saying, oh yeah, that's me, because I've been given super special secret knowledge about stuff. Duh. For there shall yet be another vision concerning the appointed time. It shall tell of the end and shall not lie. Chapter 2, verse 3a. 
Interpreted, this means that the final age shall be prolonged and shall exceed all that the prophets have said, for the mysteries of God are astounding. That's not in the text. Whatever. Continuing on. If it tarries, wait for it, for it shall surely come and shall not be late. Chapter 2, verse 3b. Interpreted, this concerns the men of truth who keep the law, whose hands shall not slacken in the service of truth when the final age is prolonged. For all the ages of God reach their appointed end as he determines for them in the mysteries of his wisdom. Um, no. No, it's, it's God telling Habakkuk, hey dude, this is actually going to happen. you got to wait for it faithfully. There you go. It's going to happen. He keeps his word. Not about specific ages and epochs and dispensations. It's just weird. Behold, his soul is puffed up and is not upright. Chapter 2, verse 4a. Interpreted, this means that the wicked shall double their guilt upon themselves, and it shall not be forgiven when they are judged. Dot, dot, dot. Of course, couldn't be a description of the Chaldeans. Oh, heaven forbid. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Chapter 2, verse 4b. Interpreted, this concerns all those who observe the law in the house of Judah, whom God will deliver from the house of judgment because of their suffering and because of their faith in the teacher of righteousness. Wow, that's very special. So this verse here, chapter 2, verse 4, is very, very, very much a plank, a fundamental foundational verse for all of Lutheranism. The righteous shall live by his faith. Faith in whom? And is it faith plus works? Well, we Lutherans, we are specifically blessed to have the book of Romans, which teaches us justification by faith alone, citing this verse. However, Qumran decides that justification, mm, no, that's, it's not about faith alone. They didn't have the book of Romans, and even if they did, they probably ripped it up. But for them, their answer is, uh, duh, the righteous, he's righteous already, so he's like observing the law in the house of Judah. And faith, not faith in God, stupid. It's faith in the teacher of righteousness. Because he's the only way you're even going to get any messages from God. <laughs> faith in God, how silly. No, trust in the teacher of righteousness. That's their take on justification. That's their take on the righteous shall live by faith. My goodness, that's the most offensive thing I've heard all year. And trust me. I've heard some heinous things and heard some insults pointed my way this year. Believe you me, this is worst. This is the worst. Anyway, moreover, the arrogant man seizes wealth without halting. He widens his gullet like hell and like death he never has enough. All the nations are gathered to him and all the peoples are assembled to him. Will they not all of them taunt him and jeer at him, saying, Woe to him who amasses that which is not his. How long will he load himself up with pledges? Chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Interpreted, this concerns the wicked priest who was called by the name of truth when he first arose. But when he ruled over Israel, his heart became proud, and he forsook God and betrayed the precepts for the sake of riches. He robbed and amassed the riches of the men of violence who rebelled against God, and he took the wealth of the peoples, heaping sinful iniquity upon himself, and he lived in the ways of abominations amidst every unclean defilement. Now, wicked priest, called by God's name, you might at first wonder if this is Qumran talking about Jesus. Well, no, because Jesus did not, according to Qumran's materialistic worldview, rule over Israel. Nor did Christ ever rob anybody and amass riches. 
He was a poor carpenter and an itinerant preacher who was then crucified and rose from the dead. Now, they're probably talking about Jonathan Office, A-P-H-U-S, I believe, who was a ruler in Judea who was a priest and also was something of a king. He took the diarchy over Israel, you know, king and priest, and then uh, fused them into one. And I believe there's some argument that it could be John Hyrcanus, but they're saying more or less, hey, this dude here, this wicked priest, he was a bad guy that betrayed the revolution. He betrayed the revolt here and decided to be something really bigger than he was. This is, Habakkuk has written about him, really. Shall not your oppressors suddenly arise and your torturers awaken? And shall you not become their prey? Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. Chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Interpreted, this concerns the priest who rebelled and violated the precepts of God, dot, 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 to command his chastisement by means of the judgments of wickedness. And they inflicted horrors of evil diseases and took vengeance upon his body of flesh. And as for that which he said, because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you, interpreted, this concerns the last priests of Jerusalem, who shall amass money and wealth by plundering the peoples. But in the last days their riches and booty shall be delivered into the hands of the army of the Ketim, for it is they who shall be the remnant of the peoples. Now, keep in mind, they are trying to maintain the allegory. They're trying to maintain the quote-unquote secret meaning and everything. But when one verse doesn't fit according to the plain meaning, and if it would counter that, they'll say, um, so there's multiple verses here that are saying you, they're addressing one person. What we're going to say is that according to the secret meaning, one you is about one guy. But then another you is about a group of people or guys. They're going to switch that up even if it's clear that God is addressing one person or one group. They have to switch it up. Now the funny thing is though, their prediction that the last priests of Jerusalem would be more or less devoured by the quote-unquote Kittim, that actually came true. I guess they got lucky. The Romans did sack Jerusalem in 70 A.D., Funny how that works. Everybody at that time knew that the priesthood was corrupt and had it coming. But continuing on here. Because of the blood of men and of the violence done to the land, to the city, and to all its inhabitants, chapter 2, verse 8b, interpreted, this concerns the wicked priest whom God delivered into the hands of his enemies because of the iniquity committed against the teacher of righteousness and the men of his counsel, that he might be humbled by means of a destroying scourge and bitterness of soul because he had done wickedly to his elect. Bakke helped spread the rumor. She didn't just not help me. Bakke was hurting me and she was like a usurper she was like trying to be popular and make me unpopular and make the school not like me so becky you're gonna get what's coming to you okay becky becky i'm gonna hurt you becky yeah anyway woe to him who gets evil profit for his house who purchases his high nest to be safe from the hand of evil you have devised shame to your house by cutting off many peoples you have forfeited your own soul for the stone cries out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork replies. Chapter 2, verses 9 and 11. Interpreted, this concerns the priest who... Dot, 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 that its stones might be laid in oppression, and the beam of its woodwork in robbery. 
And as for that which he said, by cutting off many peoples, you have forfeited your own soul, interpreted this concerns the condemned house, whose judgment God will pronounce in the midst of many peoples. He will bring them thence for judgment, and will declare them guilty in the midst of them, and will chastise him with fire of brimstone. Yep. Woe to him who builds a city with blood and founds a town upon falsehood. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that the peoples shall labor for fire and the nations shall strive for naught? Chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Interpreted, this concerns the spouter of lies who led many astray that he might build his city of vanity with blood and raise a congregation on deceit, causing many thereby to perform a service of vanity for the sake of its glory and to be pregnant with works of deceit that their labor might be for nothing and that they might be punished with fire who vilified and outraged the elect of God. Okay, they have a false teacher that they don't like that started a sect that they really don't like that had rites and rituals that they really don't like. I do suspect that this particular commentary was written sometime when the Christian church started. After all, everybody called Jesus a liar if they weren't already following him, and he did introduce at least one new rite, communion. But we continue on. For as the waters cover the sea, so shall the earth be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 14. Interpreted, this means that when they return, dot, 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 the lies, and afterwards, knowledge shall be revealed to them abundantly like the waters of the sea. Woe to him who causes his neighbors to drink, who pours out his venom to make them drunk, that he may gaze on their feasts. Chapter 2, verse 15. Interpreted, this concerns the wicked priest who pursued the teacher of righteousness to the house of his exile, that he might confuse him with his venomous fury. And at the time appointed for rest, for the day of atonement, he appeared before them to confuse them and to cause them to stumble on the day of fasting, their Sabbath of repose. Um, all right, wicked priest being uh, somebody who pursues the teacher of righteousness solely for the sake of interrupting ceremony and fasting and Sabbath, I guess. Somebody they really don't like his teachings and they think that he's blinding him with science, as the saying goes. Oh yes, um... I'm going to throw teachings at you and cause you to argue amongst yourself. <laughs> I'm the bad guy. You have filled yourself with ignominy more than with glory. Drink also and stagger. The cup of the Lord's right hand shall come round to you, and shame shall come on your glory. Chapter 2, verse 16. Interpreted, this concerns the priest whose ignominy was greater than his glory. For he did not circumcise the foreskin of his heart. And he walked in the ways of drunkenness that he might quench his thirst. But the cup of the wrath of God shall confuse him, multiplying his dot 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 in the pain of dot dot dot. Again, this is insane. Habakkuk, like every other prophet we've been reading thus far, like Nahum, names names. He says what he's talking about so everybody can see it. They don't want that to be true. Even though Habakkuk is talking about one group of people and one king over them, the Babylonians, no, duh, how could it possibly be that? We're going to go in every single possible direction from the Kittim to the wicked priest to the man of the lie to uh, John Aphis. We're going to go to all these different directions to formulate the narrative we want. Gets the worst here. For the violence done to Lebanon shall overwhelm you. 
and the destruction of the beasts shall terrify you because of the blood of men and the violence done to the land, the city, and all its inhabitants. Chapter 2, verse 17. Interpreted, this saying concerns the wicked priest, inasmuch as he shall be paid the reward which he himself tendered to the poor. For Lebanon is the council of the community, <laughs> and the beasts are the simple of Judah who keep the law. As he himself plotted the destruction of the poor, so will God condemn him to destruction. And as for that which he said, because of the blood of the city and the violence done to the land, interpreted, the city is Jerusalem, where the wicked priest committed abominable deeds and defiled the temple of God. The violence done to the land, these are the cities of Judah where he robbed the poor of their possessions. Oh uh, yeah, it's not Lebanon that means Lebanon. It's the community of Qumran that means Lebanon. And it's not the beasts that are just beasts here. It's um, it's it's the poor and the, the simple of Judah, the rubes who just follow the law. <laughs> We're smart. Of what use is an idol that its maker should shape it? A molten image, a fatling of lies. For the craftsman puts his trust in his own creation when he makes dumb idols. Chapter 2, verse 18. Interpreted, this saying concerns all the idols of the nations which they make so that they may serve and worship them, but they shall not deliver them on the day of judgment. Wow! Broken clock right twice a day, am I right? Oh my goodness! For once they said something that does actually apply to Babylon and does actually work as an interpretation. Huh, funny that. But finally, woe to him who says to wood awake and to dumb stone arise. Can such a thing give guidance? Behold, it is covered with gold and silver, but there is no spirit within it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Verses 19 and 20. Interpreted, this concerns all the nations which serve stone and wood, but on the day of judgment God will destroy from the earth all idolatrous and wicked men. The verse doesn't say that, even though, yes, one day God is going to make an end of idolatry altogether. Okay, so we have left here in their commentaries Zephaniah, Malachi, and Psalms here. Let's go pretty quickly and see what we can get done. From Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, The Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill, and their goods shall be plundered, and their houses laid waste, dot, 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 cannot. Its interpretation concerns, dot, dot, dot. And their other ones are pretty fragmentary here. In the fire of his jealous wrath, all the earth shall be consumed for a full, yea, sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Zephaniah 1, verse 18, Come together and hold an assembly, O shameless nation, before you are driven away like chaff. A day has passed away before there comes upon you the fierce anger of the Lord. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. The interpretation of this saying concerns all the inhabitants of the land of Judah, dot, dot, dot. That's all we have about their commentaries for Zephaniah. We get a small one here on Malachi. Then those fearing the Lord spoke with one another, and he heeded and heard them, and a book of memorial was written before him of those who feared the Lord and thought of his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, my special possession on the day when I act, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Malachi chapter 3 verses 16 through 18. Its interpretation, dot, 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 the righteousness and over, dot, dot, dot. 
I flippin' guarantee you that if we had the entirety of their interpretation, they would be saying, oh yeah, the people making an agreement and beginning to serve God, that's not what happened in Malachi's ministry. That's what's going to happen when everybody decides to finally submit to the community of Qumran and do what we say forever. Like, clearly, I guarantee you, I would bet serious money that that's what they were going to say. But I guess, you know what, I'm not going to have the time to go over all their commentaries on the Psalms, and that's going to tie into their Midrash on the last days. We'll cover that next week, and we'll try to, we'll try to see the connections here between their interpretations of the Psalm and why Bakke is such a loser. Oh my gosh, I can't wait to see Becky get what's coming to her. Yeah, we'll get to it. <laughs> Catch all next week. Amen and amen.